thanks for joining us. We are covering young femoral neck fractures this month for our AO Trauma Journal Club. I'm Lauren Tapman, and I'm working with Dr. Potter and Dr. Marshan to moderate the session this evening. And the faculty authors that are joining us are Dr. Swinkowski, Slobosian, Morshed, and Patterson. In patients between the age of 12 and 49 years, can you start off uh, and tell us a little bit about what was going on in Seattle and what inspired the study at that time? Uh, sure. Well, actually, for me, the story goes back a little bit farther. Uh, I was a, a medical student at USC, uh, which was based at that time at LA County Hospital. And the chief of orthopedics was uh, Paul Harvey. Uh, and there was two staff members for a total of 12 residents. So a total of three. So Tillman Moore and Mike Patsakis were with J. Paul Harvey. And uh, as a student interested in orthopedics, I used to go to the Grand Rounds, which were every Monday, uh, during which the chief residents would present a series of cases. Uh, and on one Monday night, uh, the topic was femoral neck fractures and the chief resident uh, produced five cases of displaced femoral neck fractures in patients starting at about 30, uh, and then with every decade or two, all the way up to 70, and asked the three attendings on every one of these cases, what should be done for this? And the answer for all five was an operation called the muscle pedicle graft, which uh, for the younger members of the audience uh, is, has fallen out of disfavor. It was an operation that was described by Jude in the 50s. Basically, you put the patient prone on a fracture table and you uh, do a reduction of the fracture closed and put multiple Hagee pins, which is a pin with a nut on it that you screw in under power, uh, four pins or so, and then you osteotomize the insertion of the quadratus femoris on the back of the trochanter a bone plug one by three centimeters and you free it up and then you rotate it 90 degrees. You make a little trough in the femoral head uh, and then you put a screw in the back of the femoral neck. And the idea was that you would revascularize, quote unquote, the femoral head by this muscle pedicle graft. So the reason why it didn't work was that number one, um, it, you're doing closed reductions and trying to hold it with multiple pins and the reductions weren't good. And number two, there's no way to swing that pedicle without uh, getting the lateral epiphyseal complex off the medial femoral circumflex. So basically by trying to preserve the blood supply, you're kinking the blood supply to the femoral head. So it proved to be a failure and there are multiple publications one of the early efforts of the Orthopedic Trauma Hospital Association before the OTA was to compile a series of uh, over 100 of these that Dick Kyle compiled from the eight members of the predecessor of the OTA. So that's the background. So I'm a resident at uh, University of Washington working at Harborview as a G2. And I get a call to go down to the ER to see a 62-year-old that fallen off the scaffold with a displaced femoral neck fracture. Dr. Sig Hansen was on call and uh, he uh, got him on the phone. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, muscle pedicle graft. And he laughed out loud. 
and I've described this experience as the one which has driven me into the academics because it never set well with me that 1,100 miles to the south, it's the answer for every femoral neck fracture. 1,100 miles to the north, it's a joke. So there has to be, one has to be right. So that got me into uh, discussing this phenomenon with Dr. Hansen, and we did an open reduction via the Watson-Gillen interval, yeah, because that was the standard there, uh, started by Bob Lindquist and Sig Hansen in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So I began to do uh, chart reviews so to look at the outcomes, and this publication was the chart review done on the younger uh, age group and how they turned out with uh, open reduction and screw fixation. So that, that's the background. It's a cohort series uh, with all the problems uh, therein, you know, selection bias, although I don't recall any direct selection bias, there, there still must have been to some degree. So that's the story behind it. And so you commented on a, a few of the ways these patients were treated. Uh, pretty much everyone got a capsulotomy. Fixation was cannulated screws and the Watson-Jones uh, was utilized for the open reduction. Yep. You had three-year follow-up on most of these patients, I think about 90%, and no non-unions, 20% AVN. Yep. Do you think we've made any progress? No, I don't think we have. Um... And it's uh, it's because um, in this age group, I don't think we have. Uh, a lot of these patients had very high energy. I can remember one of them was pushed out of a third story window, a young woman, uh, and she developed post-traumatic osteonecrosis. If you get enough displacement at impact, you actually shear the, the lateral epiphyseal artery complex. So you basically have a completely non-vascularized uh, femoral head that is going to revascularize uh, through the, the trabecular and the neck. And eventually you're going to get uh, resorption in the weight-bearing area and collapse. And the, one of the things that this uh, study, this uh, cohort taught me was that in some cases, the collapse occurs uh, at, after three years. Um, and the other thing that it taught me was that in general, if patients, aren't having any pain uh, in the, uh, the run-up to the long-term follow-up, they're probably not gonna develop it. But if they have continued uh, pain, particularly groin pain over the years, despite normal looking radiographs, eventually it's gonna collapse. Um, so the reason why it's 20% is that I think that's the group where the actual blood supply was, was sheared off during high energy trauma, or we got to them too late and it was really the intracapsular tamponade effect uh, that obscured the, the blood supply through that vessel complex. In your current practice, uh, is everyone getting a capsulotomy and what is your typical fixation device? Well, uh, you know, I'm no longer practicing at level one center. So when I, uh, when I see uh, patients, uh, on the rare occasion they let me still take call, um, I, would, I would always uh, open the capsule uh, for uh, any fracture. And this is an area where 
we have uh, not been able to move the needle. Most, patient, most uh, practitioners in the OTA don't, don't believe in the intercapsular tamponade phenomenon. The last survey I can remember was only 30% uh, would consider an open reduction or a capsulotomy. But the thing I always ask when discussing this in large audiences is if you don't believe in intracapsular tamponade, how is it that you get post-traumatic osteonecrosis in a non-displaced fracture in 10 to 15% of cases? So there's, there's no other mechanism. And uh, I've done a lot of uh, basic research in uh, rabbit and pig models to show that with intracapsular pressure, you can obscure the blood supply of the femoral head as measured by laser Doppler. So yes, I would do a capsulotomy if it's a, a relatively non-displaced fracture where you don't need to do a open reduction to uh, assure accurate reduction. I would still place a 15 blade along the anterior femoral neck and do a, a uh, a fluoroscopy controlled capsulotomy rather than an open reduction. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah. What, uh, what about fixation device? Oh, right. Uh, well, uh, I still would use uh, a multiple screws that the, the manuscript, which we're discussing, we didn't have cannulated screws in those days. We just used solid screws. And we actually at one point developed a, a jig so that we could put parallel uh, 3.2 millimeter drill bits and get the screws uh, parallel. Um, so with cannulated screws, that's become a lot easier. Um, and uh, so I would use uh, three screws um, for, for most of these. For physiologic age cutoff for fixation versus arthroplasty, any advice or insight that's maybe changed over time as arthroplasty is more common, but any role, you know, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds for fixation of a displaced femoral neck, if they're physiologically that age as well? Uh, in, in my mind, yes. Uh, I think that our field of orthopedic surgery has been heavily influenced by the meta-analyses, um, uh, which has shown that when you're looking at RCT data, that the failure rate for internal fixation in patients above 65 is a high 30s, 33, 37%. In the FAITH trial, which uh, Dr. Bandari and I did, um, multi-center, multinational trial, the failure rate was only 24% with more accurate reduction, but it, it is still uh, 24%. So the way I think uh, I would recommend that people make decisions is taking a history. If the patient is very active, uh, let's say they're my age, nearly 70, and still, you know, riding a bike uh, two, 3,000 miles a year and doing resistance training and doesn't have renal failure or anything like that, I would want my femoral neck fracture fixed. Um, and if the patient is uh, not very active, uh, barely a community ambulator, diabetic uh, with multiple medical problems, that's the patient that should have the arthroplasty. And you can debate uh, hemis versus total hip. Uh, the health trial, which Dr. Bandari and Dr. Einhorn led, showed no difference at two years for uh, the uh, monopolar versus total hip. 
but of course that that study needs the 10 year follow up on what's most advisable. So the answer is for a healthy younger person, I don't see an upper age limit. Um, have a go at internal fixation. It's still going to work out in worst case, uh, two thirds of the time. Yeah. I would, uh, I'd want my femoral neck fixed as well. Yeah, you're, you're not anywhere close to 70. But, but then you'd, you would want to choose your surgeon too, as would I. What do you think is the most important question that still needs to be investigated for these injuries? Well, if, it, if, I, if, if I had something to say about uh, the direction of, of uh, clinical research, which I've tried and have been relatively ineffective over the last 30 years, is to really investigate open versus closed reduction. As I, I've already alluded to the FAITH trial, it was uh, barely 10% of patients had open reduction. So in my mind, that's the issue. If, if you have, I, I've done this many times through the years in training residents, we do a closed reduction and that, that looks really, really good. Then we open the fracture and you can see it's off 20 degrees in rotation. The, uh, the fracture lines don't interdigitate. So you've got uh, peaks and valleys on top of peaks and valleys, which is the reason why we get early settling of the fracture and the screws back out. Um, this still needs to be investigated because the failures, I'm sure, are primarily related to the fact that the reductions are not good. Uh, and you're relying on devices to hold, hold the uh, neck shaft angle and the anterior to posterior angulation. That's why in the FAITH trial for displaced fractures, sliding hip screws outperformed multiple screws because you're transferring, transferring the biomechanical loads the shaft. You're not relying on the screws uh, to hold the reduction when they don't have any way to transfer the weight-bearing force to the shaft. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, <clears throat> welcome everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, what I consider one of the premier orthopedic trauma researchers and a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Gerard Slobosian, joining us from the University of Maryland where he's an associate professor and the director of clinical research. So this is part of the AO North America installment um, journal club on young femoral neck fractures. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, Dr. Slavosian's paper published in Injury circa 2015 entitled Management of Young Femoral Neck Fractures, Is There a Consensus? So before we get uh, started in, into the nitty gritty of asking Dr. Slavosian some details here, I'll just give everyone a brief summary of the paper. So this study um, was aimed to survey surgeons looking at treatment preferences for young femoral neck fractures. A 17 item survey was sent to 540 surgeons and it revealed that most surgeons perform open reduction in less than 25% of cases, but that's including both displaced and non-displaced fractures, so keep this in mind. Time to fixation for most cases was less than 24 hours, and for displaced fractures, the preference was split between surgeon preference for um, cannulated screws or a sliding hip screw device. Interestingly, also, I thought most surgeons 
reported using both um, device strategies when treating these fractures in the previous year. So it's really a kind of a gross overview, uh, looking at a bunch of surgeons and a bunch of uh, preferences, surgeon preferences for managing these injuries. So Dr. Slobosian, we'll just start by um, asking you a little bit about what the genesis of this study was and kind of what, what, what brought about uh, your interest in this topic. Sure. Uh, thanks again, Lucas. Uh, thanks for the, the introduction, the kind words, and the opportunity to discuss uh, this topic. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, this study was published in, I think, about 2015, but really the work uh, prior to its publication was a few years in the making. And the impetus for the study was uh, multifold. Uh, first of all, my mentor, uh, Mo Bhandari, had the FAITH trial underway. And the FAITH trial was an elderly uh, femoral neck fracture study looking at cancella screws and sliding hip screw. And so we recognized that, you know, even once we solve that problem, young femoral neck fracture patients are very different than elderly patients. So we wanted to dive into that a little bit more. And I took a particular interest in that uh, coming off my, my own uh, high energy trauma fellowship. The other thing that we really noticed was, uh, in preparation for what we were gonna call the FATE 2 trial, which was the same study, but in young femoral neck fractures, uh, that there was sort of a growing change in North America in terms of how surgeons were uh, wanting to approach these fractures. Uh, previously, both documented by Dr. Bhandari in a, pr a previous survey, and also just in my own experience, you know, the vast majority of these injuries were treated with uh, closed reductions and multiple cancella screws. And then slowly over the years at the OTA and within our societies and things like that, you would see that more and more surgeons wanted to treat these with open reductions and uh, fixed angle devices. And Liberace published a paper, I think maybe 2009, 2010, somewhere around there in JBGS that really um, showed much better results with uh, fixed angle devices. And I think that that continued to really drive this move to changing um, implants. And so really there was a lot of equipoise or at least controversy in there. And we wanted to, to survey a wide network of surgeons to figure out what they were doing at the time. And was there any specific finding in this study about surgeon preference that surprised you or something that you didn't anticipate going into releasing the survey? Well, I, I think the two things that were notable for me was, again, the previous survey by Dr. Bhandari and just my own experience, which was the vast majority of these were treated closed with cancella screws. And then, you know, 15 years later, you repeat the survey and now you're seeing a much larger proportion of people using fixed angle devices and, um, and open reductions. So I think that was probably the most notable uh, finding there. Yeah, the other thing, sorry, that I want to mention is this survey was actually of uh, a bunch of different orthopedic surgeons, not just North American surgeons. So there were uh, some international surgeons in there too. And I think that the international community didn't jump on open reduction with fixed angle devices as, as aggressively as North America did. Yeah, you kind of, <clears throat> in the results of the paper, you guys break down surgeon preference by a variety of things, by surgeon experience, whether they were North American based or international. And, and there are a couple of interesting findings. And I think you're accurate that the uh, group of surgeons that responded, the non-North American group of surgeons that responded were less likely to perform open reduction. Um, 
So you survey essentially on kind of three important factors. I mean, there's a, you ask a bunch of questions, like we said, it was a 17 item survey, but I think the three things that we're gonna talk about during this journal club and the three things people consider kind of important topics when it, come to the young, when it comes to the young femoral neck are kind of method of reduction, so open versus closed, your implant choice, whether that's multiple screws or a sliding hip screw, and then the timing of reduction. Is this a surgical emergency or a surgical urgency? And I'll just ask you kind of a little bit about your own preferences because I know you've done a lot of thinking. You've published kind of a series of work on the young femoral neck. And so I'd ask you a little bit about your method of reduction, your implant choice and timing of reduction and how you see literature kind of supporting um, your decisions in that regard. Yeah, no, th thank you and, and thanks for highlighting, uh, you know, as you mentioned, a body of work that we've done with all of our collaborators, lots of North American sites with uh, McMaster University and and really, I think this, what I'm going to describe, it describes my evolution and sort of 10 years of, of research in, the, in this topic. So I think the first thing to, to mention is that probably the number one predictor of, of your outcome is going to be your reduction. Now, that, in my opinion, based, and again, based on the literature, is really still based on radiographic reduction. So I am not dogmatic that you must do an open reduction. I think if you can get a radiographic good reduction, um, then that is sufficient. That is a, a reduced fracture. And I think the work by uh, uh, Sam and, and uh, Joe Patterson, um, I think was, was really helpful in that uh, it, it showed that there is probably a cost to open reduction, all things being equal. So I think number one, you got to get it reduced. My preference is to try a closed reduction first. If not, then I'm going to proceed to an open reduction. And then the really high comminuted, highly displaced fractures, a lot of those are getting open reductions. The second thing, I mentioned that first, but you know, the next part is the timing of that reduction. Because the reduction is most important, I think you want to have your best surgical team. I don't think you want to be tired in the middle of the night when you're more likely to accept an unacceptable reduction. So for me, timing has become less important. There's been other papers that have sort of supported that as well. And so I'm trying to do these within 24 hours, but certainly during the daylight. The next thing then becomes the implant. My implant choice uh, has evolved uh, and it continues to actually be a little bit of a dichotomy. So I think both types of implants, fixed angle and multiple cancellous screws have benefits. And ultimately, I think in many senses, really you're picking your complication that is acceptable uh, to you and the patient, right? So what we know from the elderly faith trial, what we know from young femoral neck data and uh, multiple publications now is that each has their own complication pattern. So cancellous screws, they're not very stable for shear, right? So they are going to fail in varus collapse and screw prominence. Sliding hip screw or some sort of other fixed angle device, it's gonna fail with cutout. And because of that, uh, depending on the patient population you're dealing with in the young femoral neck uh, bucket, uh, that complication can be very different. So in a 20 year old, screw cutout is a huge problem. That now is a total hip. In a 45-year-old, that may not be as much of a problem. So the way I approach this now is for the young patient, like I just mentioned, the 25-year-old patient, 
I'm going to give them cancellous screws because I think that their bone quality is, is tougher. So a, a sliding hip screw may actually spin the head a little bit more. I think that a smaller diameter uh, screw may um, decrease the risk of AVN. There's some data to support that. And most importantly, if they collapse in varus, um, that's an easy problem that I can deal with. Conversely, if they're 45, for example, I think that their bone quality is probably a little less um, strong. Uh, they may have a little more comminution. They may need more uh, vertical shear resistance. So a fixed angle device is probably better in that regard. And again, if it cuts out at 45 years old, a total hip arthroplasty is not, you know, a life sentence. So that's how I, I now view it is sort of based on which complication is still tolerable and, and what is most likely that they need. And then lastly, I would say, given all of that, I'm very, very interested in some of the new implants that combine the, perhaps the best of both worlds, things that have multiple small diameter screws, but are actually fixed angle. And in Europe, the Targon device has a long track record now of really good results. And in North America, the devices that we have brought to market have uh, really struggled. And um, there's been at least three major devices in the last 10 years that have come to market in North America that have all been pulled, uh, two in the last few years. And there's one device uh, that remains that seems to be uh, having some promise. And that's a single screw with a derotation screw all fixed angle, it allows some collapse, uh, smaller diameter than the sliding hip screw. And um, being on the OTA program committee, spoiler alert for the 2021 meeting, uh, there's gonna be at least one or two case series presented with uh, some pretty good results. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Uh, th thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Like I said, you obviously have a body of work here which means not only do you know the data from the publications that you've uh, been part of the authorship on, but also all of the publications you reviewed to write those papers and to come up with those grants and everything. So it's really helpful to get your insight on sort of those kind of like we talked, those three big buckets of treating the young femoral neck, because I know you have a, you've thought about it probably more than the average traumatologist. So um, we're grateful for you sharing some insights and also joining us uh, for this. And then the next part of this will be a live Q&A. And so hopefully if, if um, people have more questions, this will generate some discussion. And the Moorshed paper that you talked about, closed versus open reduction, is another paper that will be part of this journal club. So hopefully we'll get into some more details surrounding the femoral neck. But again, want to thank you for your time and, and sharing your expertise on the topic. Awesome, Lucas. Thanks again for the opportunity. All right, guys. Sam Morshed from uh, UCSF Orthopedic Trauma. And uh, we're going to be discussing with him uh, the paper that was published in June of 2020 uh, entitled Open Reduction is Associated with Greater Hazard of Early Reoperation After Internal Fixation of Displaced Femoral Neck Fractures in Adults 18 to 65 Years Old. Hi, Dr. Morshed. Hello. Uh, I was hoping you could start uh, perhaps by uh, just giving us a brief outline of the article and uh, telling us why you think it was uh, relevant to do this study at this point in time. Yeah, I think the even going back to before the, the study was initiated, I, you know, I, was, I was trained um, 
with a uh, with a strong uh, bias towards uh, performing open reduction for for femoral neck fractures in in young patients. And uh, I came out of fellowship uh, about twelve years ago, really feeling feeling like I had the tools to answer this problem and um, uh, treated basically every femoral neck fracture that I encountered in the first five or six years of my practice with, uh, with the techniques that I had learned um, and uh, realized that my own results, when I looked at them honestly, weren't a whole lot better. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't avoiding problems like non-unions and avascular necrosis um, by doing the surgery that I thought was the best thing for my patients. And I got together at a, an OTA meeting um, with the Orthopedic Trauma Research Consortium uh, and a bunch of other investigators thought that this was a reasonable question to ask, that we really didn't have a good comparative study. Um, there's a lot of, of, of dogma that I think drives the, uh, the use of, of, of open reduction um, without a lot of strong um, uh, 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 literature to support it. So we decided to perform because this is these are rare problems, um, uh, even at the busiest trauma centers around the country and the busiest surgeons really don't perform uh, that many of, 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 of these operations in any given year. We thought of, this was a great opportunity to pool uh, pool resources um, and experience. And so we decided uh, to get a, a number of centers together to perform a retrospective review of their, uh, of their um, uh, femoral neck fractures treated operatively. And we were primarily interested in the question of whether an open reduction uh, resulted in uh, a, a decrease in, in complications and, and, and late uh, uh, conversion surgeries to uh, to arthroplasty. Um, so we uh, we decided that we would all uh, look back um, uh, over about a decade of experience and pull cases for which we had reasonable uh, reasonable follow up and um, and uh, analyze these using a uh, I don't think an overly sophisticated technique, and we can talk a little bit more about propensity uh, analysis and what that means, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's a technique for adjusting for um, uh, known and measured uh, potentially confounding variables um, in, in trying to get at you know, what might be causal effects of the decision to, uh, to open uh, for a reduction or not. Thanks. And I think that that's a good segue into maybe touching on some of the um, criticisms that would probably uh, follow this study. So the most obvious one being people would say, oh, well, open reduction is going to select for the worst fractures. Um, and you guys have tried to address that a little bit. Do you mind touching on? Yeah, sure. So um, we, uh, we looked at, uh, we looked at measured and adjusted for um, the level of the fracture, basicervical versus transcervical. Um, we looked at uh, the Powell's angle, adjusted for that. Um, looked at the presence of other factors that have been associated with poor outcomes, such as poor uh, posterior comminution, um, AO classification. I mean, every way in which uh, investigators have, have tried to classify these injuries um, that would convey some information about injury severity uh, was, was adjusted for. And 
the result was that you found that that essentially did not have an influence on on outcomes. Yeah. So, well, we we uh, we found that after adjusting for these factors, um, that the the crude uh, difference, um, which was not that dramatic, actually became quite substantial in, in favor of a, of a closed approach. So that you know, ultimately in our uh, in our adjusted hazard model, there was a you know almost a two and a half fold increase in in the rate of uh, of, of complication um, uh, leading to reoperation for those uh, for those who uh, you know who underwent an open uh, reduction versus a closed closed approach. Were you surprised by it? Yeah. When your hypothesis going into a into a study or your potential bias and my bias, uh, you know, has always been uh, towards performing an open reduction. When that's refuted by the data in hand, um, I think it's you know it, it is it's incredibly surprising. I think it makes it more credible. Honestly, if I if I were affirming, and we often do, so much of our literature is written almost explicitly to confirm our own practices and biases. This this is a case in which the opposite occurred, and um, I, I mean you have to understand that when, when I saw this, I scrutinized it more than all of the comments that have been written to the JOT about this article. I mean a lot of them are reiterating my own questions about it, and so we I mean we we really went back again and again and really made sure that the analysis was done properly, that the modeling was done properly, that we were using a a propensity score that really uh, that really fit the data correctly, um, and that the results the results uh, stayed as they were, and that was that was you know I, I guess if I was a reader and I know who I am, I that would make the results more more uh, more convincing because I'm actually reporting something that's completely um, it's completely opposite to what I you know what I've taught I've been, uh, the way I was trained and the way I've taught. Uh, residents and fellows for many years. Have you changed your practice accordingly? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a it's a good question. Um, I, you know, I don't I don't um, I so I will give I will give a good attempt at a closed reduction now um, when I'm treating these patients. If I'm not satisfied with that, I still perform open reductions um, frequently because I can't. You know, I'm unable to get a reduction that to me is satisfactory. But I was. You know, I, I, I didn't contribute a single patient to this study in the closed reduction category. Mine were all open reductions. And um, I definitely do, I do uh, attempt and, you know, will occasionally achieve a satisfactory reduction um, uh, with closed means. And those are cases that I would have still opened in the old days. I was taught, you know, even if you, you know, even if it looks perfect on, you know, on, on imaging that, you know, you open that up and you're going to still see a millimeter of displacement or, you know, some, you know, or some, you know, or more. Um, and, you know, you can't accept that. But I think what it also, um, you know, it also got me to reading a lot of the newer literature that's out there as well as some of the older literature about, you know, the important um, uh, blood supply that, uh, to, you know, to the, to the femoral uh, neck and head. Um, I think you know an anterior approach is not uh, is not without putting some some risk to to uh, to, to vessels that perfuse at least the uh, uh, at least the uh, the anterior uh, neck, and I think that you know I, I think that even a very carefully performed um, open approach, whether you do it via Watson Jones or a 
Poiter uh, uh, or Smith Peterson. Um, it, it's it it puts it puts the the blood supply to the femoral neck and head at some risk. So I, I do I do undertake open reduction with uh, with greater care, um, and I use it um, I use it more sparingly. You know that that's that's the extent to which these data have have kind of changed my own practice. Do you want to just touch a little bit on assessing the reduction for this study first of all, and then what your practice is for assessing a reduction and determining whether or not that's something that you're going to need to open? Yeah, it's a, so it's a good question. We, um, being that this was a, a retrospective study, we we didn't have post-operative CTs, which would probably be a gold standard, I think, for, for uh, assessing uh, the quality of reduction. Um, in the paper, we, uh, we uh, pulled radiographs and had a group of, of three of the senior, uh, senior authors um, uh, on the study um, assess them for adequacy of reduction um, uh, in the, uh, the, the frontal and lateral planes. Um, and found that, you know, interestingly enough, uh, whether you opened or closed, uh, you performed a closed reduction, the quality of reduction is judged by uh, the, the, three of, uh, the three of us um, was about the same. It was about 70% um, satisfactory or anatomic so far as we could tell from, um, from post-operative radiographs. Um, that was another surprising finding to me, honestly. Um, but I mean, this is, re this is representative. This is what you get from multi-center research is something that I think is pretty generalizable. You know, it's maybe, you know, maybe we should all be shooting for better um, when we're performing an open reduction. Um, maybe this is just the best that the best of us can get. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to the, to the, to the readers to, you know, to judge that for themselves. You finished off the article suggesting that um, perhaps uh, RCTs required to really answer this question. But after this, I would ask, do you think that you have clinical equipoise? Do you think that in a, in a femoral neck fracture that can be reduced closed, is it reasonable to randomize that person into an RCT for open? Yeah, it's, I, I mean, maybe I'll start, you know, by, by just kind of asking you to pull up figure number one. Uh, what we did here was based on our propensity model, um, we, the first, so the, the gray bars are basically the percentage of, of fractures that were contributed from any center uh, that the model would have estimated would be, uh, would be treated with, uh, with an open reduction. And you can see that all those gray bars kind of, they, they kind of hover around the same kind of same range of somewhere between 30 and 60, 65%, maybe just around like that. And then you look at the black bars, which is what was actually happening. Um, and you can see, uh, that, uh, there was, uh, you know, there was one center that didn't perform a single uh, open reduction far to the left, and there's a center at the far right of this of, of, of the graph that performed an open reduction in every single case. And so, um, I, I clearly that shows that there's, you know, there's a range of equipoise here about, you know, because, you know, ostensibly, you know, the same kinds of injuries are showing up at most centers, and that's what the gray bars would suggest. Um, but what they're getting really depends a lot on the culture 
of the institution at which they're treated, right? And a lot of, you know, a lot of centers kind of treated out, you know, they kind of divvied up treatment based on, you know, more or less what the propensity score uh, picked, but they're definitely outliers as well. Um, I think that, uh, I think that if, if this were a more common injury or we could get a large enough uh, group of centers to contribute cases, I think it is, it is a question that I think is randomizable and uh, I think would benefit from the, you know, the causal inferences that you would gain from a, from a randomized trial. Um, but I, you know, I, uh, I'm also aware of the enormous, you know, enormously controversial nature of this, you know, this question. And, uh, you know, I think that that to some extent is a, an impediment to getting a good randomized trial performed on this question. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I, I think you know we we had a follow up uh, paper on this. A lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, comments were uh, were sent our way about whether whether there was a difference that um, that we noticed in the quality of reductions obtained through uh, a a more direct anterior Smith Peter Hoyter approach versus a Watson Jones. Um, and did not see uh, did not see a difference. That was a follow up paper um, that we published this last year in the JOT. Um, so if that's a question that you have, uh, you know, my response to you would be uh, pick pick the approach that you are more comfortable with. They both seem to uh, afford the surgeon um, an adequate exposure to achieve uh, achieve a good reduction. Another, you know, another interesting point. A lot of um, a, a lot of people um, ask the question, why didn't we adjust for the type of fixation? You know, there's a great interest, in, and I alluded to this earlier in our discussion, Jeff, about about you know, the different type of implants. Like, did that make a difference? Was that, you know, was that a confounder that you adjusted for? And I think it's really important for us to understand when we're doing these journal clubs and trying to understand the methods behind a paper like this, um, that you understand that um, the, the choice of implant is actually not, uh, it's not a confounder. Uh, it cannot be a confounder. It lies on the causal pathway between, uh, between the surgical approach we use and the outcome we're trying to measure. And, um, if you adjust for a factor that lies somewhere between choice of surgical approach and outcome, you begin to adjust away some of the causal effects that you're interested in studying. Um, we, we adjust for factors that lie upstream or, uh, or can affect the choice of surgical treatment. But if you adjust for something that lies on the causal pathway between the intervention and the outcome, you're imposing a new bias on, on your estimate of outcome. So if that's a question that you have, you know, why didn't you look at you know, the type of fixation uh, as a confounder? That's my response to you is that you cannot, if you're trying to understand the effect of, of surgical approach and outcome, if you, if you adjust for any kind of technical downstream intervention that happens, you're, you're interfering with that causal pathway. And that's why that would require a different type of study, right? What that would require a faith one type of study that looks at, you know, the type of, you know, randomizes the, the surgical implant. Um, and I, you know, isolates that as a factor of interest in study. Thank, thanks very much, Dr. Morshed for joining us today. Uh, that was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. I hope you uh, enjoy the article and, and, uh, and have some lively debate.
All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, after the videos. This brings us to the Q&A portion of the Journal Club that I'll be moderating. So <clears throat> I'll remind all the attendees that if you type into the uh, Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, we'll get your questions answered. We've got a couple questions lined up that I'll ask the panelists joining us tonight. And if we run out of questions, I've typed out some questions of things that I thought of listening to the uh, video interviews. So we'll start with uh, one, the first question we got in the uh, um, Q&A box for all the panelists it, it would be, what size screws are you using when you're fixing the young femoral neck if you're using a screw-only construct? And uh, why don't we just start with Dr. Swinkowski and then we'll go to Dr. Slobosian and Dr. Patterson to follow. 6.5, 7.3, whatever is available on the back table. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, typically 7.3, but if it's a smaller neck, 6.5 is definitely fine. Same, 6.5, Awesome, thanks. I think that pretty universal for everybody, 6.5, um, maybe the rare instance where people are using 8.0, I suppose. Um, and then the next question I think is um, aimed primarily at Dr. Patterson. And the question surrounds your analysis. And I think that there is something covered in the paper. So I think you'll like this question. The question is, could the results of the study be because more complicated fractures require open reduction? That's a great question. Um, and the answer briefly is yes. You know, in a retrospective analysis, you can only adjust for everything that you've already measured. So I think Dr. Morsha touched on it. It's difficult to measure severity of these injuries. We don't all agree on the classification system for them, but there are features that probably correlate with the amount of energy that's gone into the fracture, whether that's posterior comminution, its location in the neck, its verticality, however you want to measure that with an angle. Those, those do probably correlate with severity. And so those measures are incorporated in the propensity score, how likely the surgeon participants were to use an open or closed reduction. And to the best of our ability, we've attempted to adjust for that by stratifying on that propensity score and then looking at how patients did through a survival analysis. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, the next question will be up for all the panelists. So we'll just go in the same order, I think, to keep things running smoothly here. And I'm actually going to um, combine multiple questions here because they're all sort of asking just general preference. So um, let's ask two of them at once here. What is your all's preferred um, open reduction approach? And what type of fixed angle device are you using? Uh, Watson Jones dynamic hip screw, two hole side plate. Uh, I would agree with Dr. Swintowski, uh, Watson Jones. If I'm using a standard uh, fixed angle device, it's still the sliding hip screw. Uh, but as I alluded to, I'm, I am interested in the, the Synthes femoral neck system, uh, which is sort of a hybrid of that new construct. And Smith Peterson, modified Smith Peterson for me. Uh, sliding hip screw, two or three hole, depending on how likely the people in the OR are to break a screw head off. And I've also been trying to use the femoral neck system, very limited numbers so far. 
And just a follow up on that, um, because two of the panelists prefer the Watson Jones, what pos patient positioning are you using for that? Is this a supine or a lateral position? Supine with a bump underneath the hip with the leg free. Uh, lateral, um, no bump, but uh, you, you definitely need a chance to, to manipulate things if you're gonna be in the lateral position. And Joe, how about you? Um, are you uh, supine with the leg free? I imagine you are if you're doing a Smith-Pete, you're supine, but are you um, leg free or are you on some sort of traction or fracture table? Uh, flat, flat Jackson table, skeletal traction through the distal femur. And, uh, I, you know, we talk about open and close reductions. I, I have a very low threshold to do a percutaneous assisted and people disagree how you want to classify that but it may have some other effects too when you're passing instruments percutaneously, maybe violating the capsule. Did you guys just control? I, Oops, sorry. Sorry, Lucas, can I just quickly say the lateral position for a Watson-Jones, I wouldn't say necessarily makes it better. Uh, it's just easier for a lot more learners to see. Uh, and we, we tend to have a lot of people scrubbed in and, and want everybody to be able to see on both sides of the table. So I, I don't want people to think the, the lateral position for Watson-Jones has some major reduction benefit in, in many senses. It may make it a little harder. Dr. Patterson, can you tell us a little bit about or remind us how in your study you controlled for percutaneous assisted reduction? Is that something um, that you guys asked and or controlled for. And then my second question that's just gonna sort of um, uh, piggyback on that is, did you guys control for the presence or absence of a capsulotomy being performed? We did look at the percutaneous assisted reduction and we did look at the capsulotomy. The frequency of those were both really low. And so they didn't make it into the propensity score model. Um, so they weren't directly adjusted for. Percutaneous assisted was considered a closed intervention. And we've seen discussions of whether that's valid semantically to different people and papers about the tibial shaft as, as well as femoral neck fractures. And then the capsulotomy, well, I think was like 10, 15% was not frequently performed for a closed reduction. Awesome, thank you. Uh, another question. Okay. Can, the I, can I just bring up a uh, question? Um, if, if a capsulotomy is not important, how is, that, how is it that the rate of avascular necrosis of a non-displaced fracture is somewhere between 8 and 10 percent? So I think that's a good, a good question. And I think there's a handful of potential answers. I, I'm not sure about that number in terms of uh, young patients, elderly patients, et cetera. Um, but there's also some data that suggests that the implant may also relate to AVN uh, with larger diameter implants, perhaps uh, affecting that. Now, I would agree with Dr. Spintowski's, I think implication here is I also can't give you the biologic rationale for why the implant is necessarily causing AVN, um, but there is some data that, that suggests that as well. Yeah, well, that your data you're quoting is from the FAITH trial, and, and the, the best, the best uh, hypothesis we can come up with is the twisting of the, the femoral head with the insertion of the screw. Um, but I don't know of any biologically plausible way that you can have a avascular necrosis with a completely non-displaced fracture without 
interosseous tamponade. And it's been shown in patients and it's been shown in pigs, it's been shown in rabbits. Um, anyway. Yeah, there's some, there's actually a nuclear medicine uh, study from like probably the seventies or something that also showed that. So. Yep. Just asking. Yeah, no, that's what this uh, portion of the journal club's all about. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I, that's something you had um, mentioned in your interview and it's actually why I wrote down to ask Dr. Patterson about it because um, I thought the capsulotomy and your sort of emphasis of the need for it to be performed uh, tied nicely into their study. Uh, and the, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be the old grouchy guy, but uh, the bit that Sam brought up about the blood supply to the femoral head, it's the anterior inferior femoral neck has nothing to do with the femoral head blood flow, zero. So sorry, that's, that goes back to 1957, Truetta's seminal work. Yeah, but, but don't you think, uh, sir, like, don't you think that maybe a, not every patient's the same, right? Like every, not every fracture pattern is the same. And, and in some patients, the anterior system may play more importance than in others and, and certainly not in a controlled lab study or, you know, a vascular study. So it, it makes me wonder, I mean, I often have to take the circumflex vessels when I'm doing a, a Smith Pete. Uh, and, you know, as I sort of alluded to in, in, in my interview was all things considered, you know, all things being equal, I, I think it's biologically plausible that an open reduction does have some amount of biologic cost. What do you think about that? It may not be for vascular, avascular necrosis. You know, the gadolinium studies at a, from, you know, Lorich's group make it pretty clear it's the neck is 50% uh, lateral femoral circumflex, 50% medial. And the neck, the, not the head. Right. And what, were, what we saw, what we think we saw in this retrospective, very limited series, is that the cost of an open reduction was not a difference in avascular necrosis, but a difference in radio operation and a major difference in non-union rate. So there's a hypothesis there, not necessarily an inference, that perhaps that difference in non-union is the biologic cost to the blood supply to the neck, not so much the head, whether that's direct insult, retractor placement, bagging the lateral femoral circumflex vessels on the way in, if you're doing a Smith-Peds. What, what, what was the N in the, I, I, I tried to find a paper, I couldn't find it. What was the total number of subjects? Uh, it's 234. Yeah, so our statisticians at JBJS really pound into our heads that propensity analyses is really not valid until you've got an N of 600. Yeah, I, would, I would really question, question that there, because the problem is the, the word propensity has been used in a lot of different analyses. And so that's probably true for matching, but there's a whole bunch of other ways to use propensity scores that that I think we shouldn't just throw them all in and say, oh, unless you have 600 patients, uh, this is invalid. And, and, in, and in Joe's defense there, this is still one of the biggest studies we have on young femoral neck fractures, probably by actually a lot. So, I mean, the group, the, that paper and the, the Corey Collins paper that hasn't been uh, published yet, as far as I know, I mean, those were two of our biggest series in young femoral neck fractures. So, we, I mean, we, we still need more data. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you certainly tried to do this. And I, I know you tried really hard to, to do phase yeah. two. Uh, yeah. but we couldn't do it. And it's unfortunate. But that's the only way we're ever going to answer this question. 
sadly. No, I, I, we got to get I, enough I totally, cooperation to do it the way you wanted to do it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And and I, I also actually want to publicly thank you uh, for all, all the help uh, and guidance that you actually provided to Faith too when we were first getting started and stuff. I mean, a, a lot of this whole journal club is actually very uh, appropriately off uh, your your early work on this. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not asking for that kind of stuff. I, I'm just it's it's an intellectual question that I think is <laughs> nicely serious. debated. Uh, but we work we are not going to get an answer to this till we do it the way you wanted to do it. And I don't know what it's going to take, but um, I hope I hope before I die that you'll be successful in doing that. Dr. Swartowski, could you tell us exactly what question um, you're you're specifically talking about when you say, you know, question, we're not going to answer this question. Is that open versus closed? Is that implant yeah. type? Is that all of those things? Yeah, it for me, it's open versus closed. It's, it, that's always been the, I can't tell you the number of residents that I've asked, look at this C-arm view, is that reduction perfect or not? And then we open it and it's off, not by a millimeter. It's off by 20 degrees of rotation. And when you don't have the comminuted fracture edges interdigitating, you have instability of the reduction. That's been shown in numerous biomechanical studies. It's just not stable. You're going to get resorption at the fracture line and settling and varus forces. Yeah, I, I mean, I, go ahead. Dr. Can I ask just if Dr. Swinkowski, if you could weigh in on that question that I asked during my interview, you know, if you have what appears to be a, an anatomic reduction after you've done a closed reduction and we know that there's a biological cost to doing an open reduction, do you think that that maybe, maybe it seems it seems that there's a biological cost? Is it reasonable to then randomize that person to have an open reduction? Yeah, I do. I for two reasons. One is accuracy reduction. Second is to evacuate the hematoma in the twelve to fifteen percent of patients that have it. You know the the interesting thing. I, I would completely agree with Dr. Swintowski in terms of anatomic reduction on x-ray opened is always still off. I'm not, I'm not sure if, if it actually matters. Uh, I, I understand that that may sound silly saying it out loud. Uh, but the reason I say that is, you know, the literature is that talks about reduction in outcome. It's always about the radiographic uh, reduction. You know, the, the people aren't opening it up and then reporting the reduction that they had uh, under direct visualization, it's always based radiographically. And so I'm not, I'm not sure about, about that situation. And then I will also say there's definitely a few, few cases where they're so highly comminuted, I open them and I spent a couple hours trying to put them back together. And I'm not sure that I made a large incremental benefit in the reduction compared to what I had uh, closed for some of these really comminuted fractures. And I, I don't know if anybody has any comments on that. Yeah, no, I've had that experience where you, you, there's nothing to read. You can't read the reduction because it's it's so dusted. Um, yeah. And uh, then then I think it's even more important to rely on a fixed angle device to to hold to hold the alignment as best you can. Would the people here be willing to randomize though? Does anyone really have equipoise for open need, versus closed reduction? They need to get it. 
because we don't know the answer <laughs> to the question. Would you uh, would you be willing to do some of your clo yours closed though? Sure. Yeah. Because I don't know. I, I think I know, but I don't know. I would have such a hard time randomizing someone and stopping feeling like I didn't get an adequate reduction. And I'd want to know how you'd consider when I make two perk incisions or one perk incision and put a ball spike on the neck or a shoulder hook around the neck and try to get it better. Am I doing a capsulotomy when I do that? Does that change the intervention arm? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's also, I mean, I, I would probably randomize a lot of my patients, maybe not all of them. Uh, but I also think it's important to recognize that there is a hundred patient RCT on this topic published in JBGS uh, British, I think 2004, 2004, I think. Um, and, you know, it, it showed a hundred patients, it's hard to show big differences there, showed no difference. Uh, but I, what I thought was most important- Every patient was, in that series was treated within four, after 48 hours of the injury. Well, I think the other thing that was important to note was there were four patients excluded because in the, they couldn't get an acceptable reduction, right? So there has to be some sort of safe safety valve there too, right? Meaning um, some patients, you just may not be able to get a reduction closed. And to Joe's point, you know, you don't want to leave those patients knowingly malreduced. Sure. Well, that, you know, that's, that's where you do an analysis as randomized and as treated, right? I mean, that's, that's a well-known uh, way to manage RCTs. You bail and you do it, you open it and then, and it, it's as treated. But we got to get enough people <laughs> who are willing to believe in science. Yeah, I think Sam's other point was well uh, taken too, which is you don't see a lot of these cases, right? No. No. Uh, which may, which certainly makes it harder too. Yeah, if it wasn't hard, it would have been done already. I like right? it. Right, you would have been successful. It would have been done. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, Faith Two uh, enrolled a hundred patients, but it took you know like seven years to do or so, six years to do. It was uh, quite a challenging study. Uh, um, thanks for that great discussion. Uh, some more questions from the Q and A. Um, <clears throat> attendees are wondering how the panelists manage basal cervical fractures, and then also how you, um, what implant you prefer in managing the situation where there's an ipsilateral femoral shaft and femoral neck. Same order. <laughs> yeah, same order. Let's keep it going. Uh, Two-hole dynamic hip screw and a retrograde femoral nail. Uh, and then three, for the for the basy cervical neck, you prefer the sliding hip screw as well. Which yeah, side plate. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, uh, a three-hole uh, just to give me a little more options for getting around the retrograde nail and the retrograde nail. Three-hole DHS and a retrograde. And same for me as well. Uh, frequently with an anti-rotation screw, uh, which anti-rotation, but also if it's not terribly displaced or a little bit varus, putting a cranial partially threaded screw first, and then your sliding hip screw can help affect a reduction through percutaneous means. That's a great point about the anti-rotation screw because we very few of those were placed in faith where we had the AVN rate increased with sliding hip screws. 
And that's a really important uh, part of the procedure. Put that screw in first before you put the large screw in. Very that's important good. point. So you think that decreases AVN? And if so, by what mechanism? By preventing twisting of the head and, and tweaking the posterior circumflex, which is the only important blood supply to the femoral head. Learned. Anatomic fact. Another interesting question for you all for Powell's three fractures. Is anybody using a blade plate? And is anybody considering an acute valgus producing intertrochanteric osteotomy to manage these high angle femoral neck fractures? Uh, yeah, so the, that's a paper that George Heidek, a uh, situation that George Heidekiewicz uh, pointed out in the late 90s, early 2000s um, with the, the shear issue at the PALS-3. So um, if you're going to be using the multiple uh, cancellous screws, you can, you can put a leg screw into the base of the neck, which actually... I pulled out this ancient article that we uh, authored in 84. There's an example of that lag screw in the base of the neck, but you, you can also uh, do that around a sliding hip screw, which would probably be how I would manage it these days. So, and just to clarify, so that would be one screw, that Powell screw going across, yep. but then also still a sliding hip screw going in the other, essentially in the other trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, I know our institution was uh, pretty interested in Powell screws and went through a, a big phase of doing them and uh, eventually published our, our results on that, which said, you know, if, if, you got it, if, if you got them to heal, they healed very nicely. And if you didn't, they essentially failed catastrophically. And so I think this area, the Powell three, particularly with neck shafts is a very complicated area, meaning there's a bunch of Powell threes that are completely undisplaced and probably doesn't matter what you do with them. And then there's a handful of them that are displaced. And I personally believe that they probably want some uh, axial uh, compression. And um, I'm not a big fan of the Powell screw in those situations. And there was an old RCT, a small RCT, 30 patients or something from I think the 60s or 70s that also suggested it wasn't a good idea. So between that and our data, um, I've moved away from Powell screws for Powell three fractures. And what is it that you use? Uh, that's a good question. It really does depend on how much uh, comminution there is at the inferior neck. I will often use uh, a sliding hip screw, uh, but as I indicated, I am a fan of multiple uh, cancella screws for the youngest of patients, particularly with patients that I feel are at high risk for torsion. Uh, because even if I put that anti-rotation screw in and the other 15 K wires that I put in uh, with really good bone, I still get some shearing when I put a, a sliding hip screw in. Uh, and again, as I alluded to, I'm now a lot more interested in this new Synthes device because I think it may give me the best of both worlds, but we'll see. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that the four or five, maybe six now biomechanical studies shows that the anatomic reduction is the most important thing. That if, if you have an anatomic reduction, it doesn't matter multiple cancellous screws versus the sliding hip screw. Where the sliding hip screw is of benefit is when you don't have an anatomic reduction. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
which is why you need to open the damn fracture. <laughs> An anatomic radiographic reduction. <laughs> this, um, this banter is reminding me why we need the uh, RCT to definitively answer this problem. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. I'm with so you 100%. We're, we're depending on you, Gerard. Get it done. <laughs> I'm going to pass that torch to Lucas. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, maybe one last question, I guess, before we run out of time here. This one, um, I'll just read it. Uh, do we know the rate of AVN is lower in non-displaced fractures if a capsulotomy is performed? Perhaps it is the trauma that causes the non-displaced fracture, which also traumatizes the vasculature enough to cause AVN. It seems that the capsulotomy itself could disrupt the blood supply to the femoral head. Thoughts? No. No, there is no, there's no relevant blood supply to the femoral head from the anterior capsule, period. Um, and there's, there's data in humans done by Reinhold Gonson Byrne. Uh, there's, data, uh, there's data in pigs that if you raise the intercapsular pressure, you occlude the venous drainage of the femoral head and you can produce osteocyte death in the femoral head. Um, and it's, again, it's been done by uh, Reinhold Gonson 2004 uh, with laser Doppler. And so, no, we don't have direct, we don't have a case series of non-displaced fractures where there has been a capsulotomy done, but it makes 100% biologic sense. Awesome. Can I ask uh, one burning question I had for the panelists here before we maybe wrap things up? that I've been thinking about a lot since my interview with Dr. Slobojan. He has a paper looking at uh, the effect of femoral neck shortening on outcome after a hip fracture. It was in elderly patients, but they demonstrated um, that uh, significant effect on your outcome, um, depending on the amount of uh, shortening you have. In the young patient, if we extrapolate that data, I'm curious as how the panelists take this into account and how it affects their implant choice. Meaning, are you concerned with shortening that it changes the implant you pick? Maybe you feel like cannulated screws, I think there is some data to support this, shorten slightly more than a fixed angle device and therefore you're more likely to pick a fixed angle device. Or I think there are some people of the mindset that the fracture, if it needs to shorten, they want it to shorten because that's what it needs to do to heal. But some people feel that a foreshortened femoral neck that portends a worse functional outcome is just as bad as potentially screw cutout or some other catastrophic complication. So I'm wondering how we balance all of these problems when we're managing these injuries. Can I add another parameter besides the implant and, and that's the weight bearing status? Yeah, well, so if you have an anatomic reduction, it doesn't matter the implant. You're not gonna get much shortening in a patient under the age of 65 if you have an anatomic reduction, with the exception of what we discussed earlier in the conversation of the highly comminuted anterior and posterior neck. There you have to accept some shortening. Um, so, and then the weight-bearing status, I'm like everyone else, I try to limit the weight-bearing status in younger patients, but it makes no sense when we tell 65-year-olds, people my age uh, and, and older, uh, that 
you know, they can bear weight to tolerance. It's completely illogical. With normal bone density and an antimer production, we should tell them to walk when they feel like it. But we don't, I don't. It's, it's just, it's inconsistent. Um, yeah, I, I would say, Lucas, th th thanks for highlighting that work. Uh, you forgot the two papers that we published in young patients, one of which is from uh, Dr. Potter's institution that's, that showed actually a 30% short, severe shortening um, uh, um, incidence in patients under 60. So either- uh, with, an an, with an open reduction? Well, no, not all of them had open reductions, but that's where yeah, I was going with that. That's why. Either that, okay. I mean, either that means that the my colleagues in Vancouver are accepting a, a bad reduction, you know, almost all the time. I hope not. Um, they trained me, <laughs> um, or or there is something more to it that you know some of these patients do uh, do shorten. And uh, I, I would say both from the elderly literature and the young literature that significant shortening does have worse clinically significant levels of um, dysfunction. So I do try and avoid it. I don't know that I have the, the right solution to avoid it, um, but I do know that if they end up there, they have a worse outcome. Yeah, I agree they have a worse outcome, but they shorten because the peaks and valleys are not touching the peaks and valleys. So you get increased resorption. And is a foreshortened femoral neck as deleterious to the outcome as a non-union? You know, if they had to collapse to achieve that? Yeah, or a screw cutout in a 25-year-old in a or a 30-year-old. Uh, have you seen a screw cutout in a 25-year-old where the screw is placed appropriately with a TAD within normal limits? I, I have yeah. Unfortunately, I have. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, right? It was a ballistic femoral mag. That's not really the same no. thing, right? But, no. um, but my my point though about picking your complication to some degree, I, I do think has some merit, right? You do see some patients that are on the younger uh, spectrum that um, that if they have a cutout, that's a real a real problem. Uh, cutouts can be salvaged with valgus osteotomy. It's use a ninety five degree implant, but it, we're talking about very rare circumstances yeah. now, extremely rare. Awesome, Lauren, if you wanna bring us home, thanks uh, to the panelists for the vibrant discussion. I really appreciate it. That's, um, it's enlightening for everybody that's attending and we had a really great turnout tonight. It looks like 140 at what? one point, over 150 participants. What? By the way, before you guys were uh, medical students, this is the way the OTA meeting used to be before it was 10,000 people. We used to sit in a room with 100 people and have discussions just like this. Those were the days. I'm bummed I missed it. I was born yeah, a couple generations it. late. I would have loved it. This is really, really cool, I think. Yeah. Thank, thanks again for hosting, everybody. Great thanks. discussion. I just have a few slides left and points here. So take home messages, the rates of complication, uh, including AVN or non-union have remained stable over the last three decades and are occurring approximately 20 to 30% of these patients. Many of the strategies are used throughout the world to manage uh, these challenging fractures and there's a lot of future work that still needs to be done. Open reduction of young femoral neck fractures should be still employed judiciously. 
with an understanding it may increase risk of reoperation and uh, the increased reoperation risk associated with the open reduction does not support accepting uh, closed to malreduce fracture. Next journal club uh, will be September 21st on TALIS. Thanks everyone for joining us.